0: Yeah, if Chris is listening, yeah, tough, you should have been here. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy. Teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week I'm joined by Adam Woodward. Hi Kieran. And Liv Dempsey. Hello. And together we're going to explore the mysterious world of independent schools. But first, Adam, what are you reading for? Hey, what are you reading for?
1: I've been reading a fantastic article on Narrowing the Achievement Gap for Disadvantaged Pupils by Demian McLean from uh, 2018. Um, It was for some work that I was doing this week, and uh, it summarised some key factors that had an impact on um, narrowing the gap with pupil premium children, and it stated some Um, Some really good practice to be used in schools uh, from strong leadership and having high quality teaching and learning, which you'd expect an inclusive curriculum, parental engagement, um, use of data, effective use of teachers or the best teachers to teach intervention groups, which I know is something that's been mentioned on here. I think Kieran, you've mentioned it before about in Singapore, the most experienced teachers teaching the lower retaining children um, and um, that really boosted results uh, quite quickly. So that was really interesting to see. Um, and then the use of funding and effective use of pupil voice and feedback as well. Some some really good points and some really excellent case studies of schools around South London um, as to how they have um, narrowed that gap. So um, I found it really interesting and it was, um, it was linked with some work that I was doing this week. Um, not linked to the independent sector, but as we're going to talk about but um, really interesting nevertheless. So Liv, what are you reading for?
2: So I have literally just started doing a master's in um, educational leadership management, and I'm reading the dullest of dull things about SWOT analysis. So I went for a lazy read this week, which was uh, Mark Hayes summary of the Ofsted's English research review, um, which is really interesting. English is my thing. Um, and, I found um, myself really thinking about Jane Considine's The Right Stuff and her spelling book, which we're using in some year groups in school that we're trialing. Um, And there was lots in there about vocabulary and modeling. And I know on Twitter, I saw um, a couple of discussions about whether or not her stuff was too scaffolded. um, And that when moderators are looking at pieces, um, you can see that there's a lot of similarities between children's work um so it's quite interesting to read this talking about how important modeling is how important rehearsing sentences is is or are oh, sorry together um and then children moving on to the independent right so it really seemed to kind of support what she was doing so it's a discussion I think we're going to have at school um as to how effective it is and not that we are moderated but I think it was an interesting aspect to think about whether or not you know it is too scaffolded or it is the perfect scaffold for children Kieran what are you reading for
0: Nice. They both sound really interesting. I've actually been reading a paper that Sam Sims recommended in Discord. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. It was um, Teaching Children to Read Irregular Words, A Comparison of Three Instructional Models, and that's from Danielle Colenbrander. And Kate Nation and Anne Castles were involved. It's quite a big team. Really interesting. I think Neil's summary was quite good in Discord. He said, not sure how much it changes on this side of the Atlantic, but I think it's going to cause some some waves um, on the other side so really interesting and something we're definitely going to follow up on on the podcast and uh, yeah if Chris is listening yeah tough you should have been here because <laughs> i have just you what you're reading for. <laughs> we're going to discuss independent sector something that you guys both have lots of experience of I think it'd probably be really useful to get an idea on how much experience and what type of experience because obviously we've been talking on the discord for quite a while and I, but I think really sort of useful to, to know where you guys are coming from. So Liv, I don't know if we start with you, do you want to sort of tell us who you are and where you're from?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so I am currently Director of Studies super snazzy job title essentially academic deputy um for uh, a prep school um just on the outskirts of a very prestigious uh, secondary college in berkshire um i've been there this is the end of my third year um and prior to that i was in middle leadership in state system um so i've had a good mix of both basically
1: um, i am also a director of studies in a school in Kent. We're a through school. So we are a prep school and senior school. So we go from nursery straight away through to 18. I was in state system before then for nine years um, and moved to the sector purely because there was an opportunity for maths leadership role. And it wasn't the sector I was necessarily interested in. It was more of the career progression for me. It just so happened to be there. Um, I've been at my school for five years. I um, started as um, maths lead, and then the change in leadership structure gave me the opportunity to become director of studies. And so now rather than maths, I'm now responsible for the development of all of our curriculum and that transition across to um, our senior school as well, which is really, really exciting. So that's me. Nice, so
0: like I'm coming at this from a complete novice standpoint. When we went to Singapore, we visited Dulwich College out there so that we could talk to the teachers there about how they saw the Singaporean system. So you can sort of get a, a bit of a balance, but that's the extent of my experience of the independent sector. So I think the best question to start with are, is what are the biggest myths and misconceptions around independent schools and independent schooling?
2: So. <laughs> that everybody is rich is number one. Um, that it's full of yummy mummies and they all just turn up at the gates in their gym gear, drop little Philomena off, wave at her and poodle off into the sunset to their range rover to go off to the gym. Um, I think that is probably the biggest thing. Where my school situated, um, we are on the edge of the grammar school system in Berkshire and Bucks, um, and so we have a lot of families who want to send their children our way because they think that's the best start for them. They're working, both parents are full-time working, um, and literally their only disposable income is to go to school um, and to send their kids somewhere where they think they're going to have the best start in life.
1: I think for me, where I am, um uh, a very affluent area of Kent, um, we do have parents that turn up in their gym gear and drop little philomena off in range rovers and and go off but very similar that it's not as common as you would expect and you would think um there are parents of children i've taught who are working two three jobs to put their children through what they feel is the best start for them um in their education and i think yeah it's um It is a a myth that should be dispelled quite quickly. Um, They're not all like that. And I think it also depends on the area of the country that you are as well. Um, Like I said, it's a very affluent area of Kent um, compared to um, where Liv is and other areas of the country, it might not be the same situation. Just because it's in an independent school doesn't necessarily mean that all the parents are coming from very wealthy backgrounds. Um, Another thing I'd like to, to mention as well is that it's not an easy life people don't join the independent sector because they've just given up on teaching it's it comes with its own demands um, and its own pressures which i'm sure that um we'll talk about and for me and again mate this is my circumstance not all our parents are awful and demanding um and on your case 24 7. yes the same as the same state sector there will be that odd parent who's constantly trying to badger you and, and talk to you about progress and how Joe's doing in school. And I think that's the same anywhere. And yes, we, get, we have those parents as well and they have access to our email and able to email us if, if they want to talk to us. And we're available to talk to them within reason. We, uh, we make sure as a, as a rule that we try and at least leave a, a standing email within 24 hours even if it means that we we find time to talk to them another time and so there that's a slight difference but I think not all of them are are the awful parents we've got some amazing parents where we are and are so supportive of everything that we do and just love the school and love what we do for our children and I think that's a myth um that should be dispelled that not all parents are there with pitchforks asking questions and demanding 24 hours of your time all the time
2: i think on the flip side of that though you know it is different the parental demands we said you know every school has different sets of demands but at the end of the day our parents are our customers and whereas when i was in state system if parent didn't necessarily agree with what i was saying i could very sweetly tell them that I was the educator and therefore we were going to carry on doing whatever it was that they disagreed with um whereas I can't really get away with doing that um I can try and explain to parents but at the end of the day you know they are our customer base and they can walk with their feet and you know it's bums on seats for us so um it's that really fine balance I think of making sure that you aren't overwhelmed by the parental demands but that you're still meeting um, their needs and their requirements. Conversely though my school doesn't give out our teachers email addresses because we know that it can be really overwhelming so again it's just like the state system every different school in in the independent sector has their own little nuances I think.
1: At the end of the day it's a business and whilst yes the the demands on parent uh, from parents are not as high as they maybe perceived to be and at least that's my experience if a parent does have a problem with something and they've got four children in the school who are and they're each paying their their fees then they need to be listened to and they will be listened to because money talks and if there aren't bums on seats and then the school doesn't stay open um, and People lose their jobs, um, so it's it's finding that fine balance between I think, and uh, I think that's it's an important thing to consider where with the independent sector.
0: I'm really glad I asked because those are two of the things that I will in in my making stuff up based on what I see on TV. You know, you expect everybody to be really sort of well off. You expect lots of pressure, but basically, that's what I think of. I think of very demanding academic rigor high expectations and sort of no split between um you know no no clear boundaries you know but so so listening to you guys talking about the idea that it's not as perceived is really really interesting i mean i hope i'm not jumping to another question having listened to us talk about issues of workload on the podcast before how do you reckon the two balance up because i one of my other preconceptions might be that there could be less work in the independent sector, but I don't think that's quite true from talking to you guys on Discord,
2: No, I think um, I mean, one of the things that from a completely superficial and shallow point of view that attracted me to working in independent state uh, sector versus state is um, I get 17 weeks holiday instead of 13, um, which is great. It means I get cheap flights as well. Um, I'm really lucky at my school that um, our chef, feeds me really well um and I get a three-course lunch every day um and she does a great job of fattening me up for Christmas um but on the flip side of it our days tend to be slightly longer um our expectations are that we do a little bit more maybe outside of work hours um but I think although we've got that extra time in the holiday there is that pressure to maybe do extra stuff so we're doing um a senior schools event after school tomorrow for example so that's something that we'll stay for we'll do specialist subject drop-ins as well as parents evenings um, we do parent workshops which staff are invited to but again i think it depends on your school we make sure that we don't ask our staff to ever come in at weekends so um if we do any christmas fairs summer fairs or anything like that there's no expectation for staff to come because it, we're really conscious of making sure that that work-life balance stays healthy
1: yes we have longer holidays it's lovely and my wife is very appreciative of the fact that we get cheaper holidays than um, other teachers um, um but yes in terms of organizing workshops having more parental engagement in school and having something on offer the i've been told a, a few times right what are we doing differently than a state sector why should joe blog send their children to our school when they can get exactly what we're offering or what um, we're offering in a state school and save themselves a lot of money. So it's about, you need to stand out. And especially, especially within the area that that I'm in at the moment in in Kent, there are quite a few independent schools and they need to stand out above each other. Um, And so it's offering something different, Um, whether that be parent workshops that parents can come into um, after school, cheese and wine evenings, Liz Liz and I were, were talking about earlier, and things like that, the Christmas fairs, Easter fairs, what can we offer to bring? And especially post COVID as well, get our parents back in school and engaging. One of our whole school targets this year was to improve parental engagement in a post COVID world. we would had two years of parents having to drop their children off at the car park and not being allowed in school. So it's how do we engage parents? And I think what we're trying to do is offer a, a lot more for parents to see in school. Um, the drop-ins in the morning to come in and see what their children are doing the the key events that we we have on in school as well and I think some of those things are I'm sure there are people listening now saying yeah we do that in the state sector as well but I think those those pressures are, are there as well to to have to put that on to make sure that parents feel as though they know what's going on in school they they know that they're getting value for money And I think that comes with a a mental pressure from teachers, from leaders in school as well, um, to make sure that the school is standing out above other competitors um, within the sector and within the area as well. In terms of workload, we're trying to reduce it. So last year, I um, led a working party on um, our feedback policy or our marking policy as it was and changed it to more feedback based on, what I've heard from on here with yourself, Kieran, and, and guests um, and from research as well to, to move to more live marking feedback, looking at a mastery model to, to make sure that those misconceptions are addressed quickly. And so then the whole written marking uh, element of, of our role is is reduced as much as possible. And so we've been trying to do that it just, like everything, it just takes time. And I think COVID has kind of put a, a stop to certain things, but also has also given us the opportunity to, to put new things in place and start afresh now we're coming back. So there are lots of similarities, I think, with the state sector, but also some differences in terms of, again, parental involvement.
0: I would dread to think what size I would be if someone was cooking me a three-course meal every lunchtime. <laughs>
2: It's not just the three course lunch. There's also substantial snack at break time and high tea after school. So yeah, <laughs> I think I've put on about two stone-ish.
1: We have the cafe and we're entitled to two free hot drinks from the cafe a day. So um, try to make use of that as much as possible. So two hot chocolates a day. Plus my my three course meal at lunch, which is great. Um, they do have a salad bar which I probably should take advantage of a little <laughs> bit more but, but I don't think I do enough so definitely something to look for in the future use the salad bar more often no chance
0: yeah um, I mean I saw your face when I was talking about workload and Adam and <laughs> um, I use preconceptions specifically because preconceptions are normally unfairly held and I accept you know, like I said come from a novice position I just want to almost sort of See what it's like, so ask the ask the question. Now, if someone were to ask you about working in the independent sector, you know, say they wanted to make the move from state to, to independent, what reasons would you give in support of such a decision?
2: Starting with the shallow, obviously, the food, the holidays, really really shallow lovely gifts the parents are super super generous um during lockdown um my i'm a form tutor as well for year 5 and my year group partner and i our birthdays are one day after the, each other and so to keep the kids and ourselves entertained during lockdown we did afternoon tea on both days and the parents sent us um champagne and truffles from fortnum and mason so that we could have sh- birthday champagne with our afternoon tea with the kids because they were so grateful that we'd put on extra things for the children during lockdown so the the parental community and the whole community ethos is fantastic it is so rewarding the opportunities that you get to see the children explore is fantastic we have specialist staff that teach two languages from reception up to year six we offer sport four days a week every child swims every week from year three to six and they do a term and a half in year one and two The facilities, like I said, we're really near a very prestigious secondary school. We get to use their research library. We get to use their swimming pool. We get to use their chapel for our Christmas services. Um, There's so many amazing extra opportunities that you wouldn't get if you were in the state system. Um, And it's often referred to as the dark side and people selling out. And, you know, Adam and I had this conversation. We both came into independent sectors from completely different routes. I was privately educated my entire life. Adam wasn't and we've ended up doing exactly the same job um, at the same time Um, and it's you know people think it's such a you're a sellout to go there it's not that at all it's just different.
1: It kind of goes back when I was saying before about the myths about parents being awful and demanding when you get to the end of a term or the end of a year or a birthday they are very very generous and very very caring with their their time and their money um we've just had a a little boy um he's two months old and they spent I don't know how much buying presents but not just for him but for his older brother as well so so grateful of their the caring nature of parents and they do care they care about their children's education but I think they care about their child's teachers as well and I think that shows and it's lovely um the resources the school are great um as Liv was saying we've got Uh, a specialist drama teacher. We've got specialist music, specialist um, MFL. We've got PE teachers um, who teach swimming, PE. We've got outdoor education. We've got 26 acres of land in our school and a wooded area where children have got access to forest school timetabled once a week. Um, And then from years four to six, it's outdoor education where children are learning those life skills. Like they learn how to start fires, um, albeit safely. Um, they learn how to to carve wood um, and they they learn how to to use the outdoors it's a great opportunity that unfortunately for lots of different reasons that the state sector don't have we've got yeah we've got our own swimming pool and our teachers get and I don't know if this is the same for you Liv we hadn't spoken about this but our teachers get a minimum of 20% PPA time so essentially it's one day out a week the way that it works with our timetable it's not in the state sector where it's like, you've got a block of an afternoon. It's dependent on when specialist teachers are teaching your class. So you, if your class are um, have got drama with our specialist drama teacher, that hour is yours, unless you are teaching um, another class. So for example, Kieran, if, if it were you, you might be asked to teach year two maths, for example, as part of your timetable as well as being a year five year six teacher um, and so some teachers will get all of that time whenever their class been um taught by specialists or you might be used to teach other classes well and use your expertise and i think that's something that and i know we'll probably come on to this a little bit later about what the the state sector could potentially benefit from as well i think as well having a broad and balanced curriculum so i've spoken about the resources and the specialist teachers. It's not just English, maths, reading, writing. It is so much more. There is dedicated time, timetabled for drama, for music, for art, um, that maybe fall by the wayside sometimes in a a state school, especially with the pressures of SATs and Ofsted um, and trying to meet certain standards. You don't necessarily get that with the independent sector. So lots of really, really um, good opportunities. I think that's one reason why parents send their children to an independent school as well, is because they know they'll get that broad curriculum. And again, Liv and I were talking earlier about um, if you've got children with specific interests and specific talents, whether it be musically or dramatically, then an independent sector is probably a better route to go down if possible, because that time will be dedicated for that within curriculum time. Whereas you may not. And I, I apologise, I'm not speaking for every state school here because I know that's probably not the case. But that dedicated time within the curriculum for art, for drama, for music, et cetera, is available there, whereas it might not necessarily be the case in the state system.
2: I think behaviour as well is an important one to touch on. So working in the state sector, I've had tables thrown at me. I'm only five foot two, so I'm quite short. So year fives and sixes tend to be my height or taller. And in the past, I've had a year five boy front up to me until I asked him if he was actually going to hit a woman, um, at which point he backed off. Now, that would never, ever, ever happen. Um, There's a lot more respect Um, from that point of view. You wouldn't have that level of behavior. You know, sort of if I've had a, a day of poor behavior in my class, it's because Philomena's called out a couple of times Um, or you know she might have fallen out with one of her friends because their new smiggle pencil case is the same as someone else's kind of thing Um, but I wouldn't have that level uh, of you know frustration with behaviour I think but on the flip side Anna and I were saying earlier that actually sometimes it also means that children can be really blasé you know, oh, well, I know I shouldn't be wearing my trainers. I should be wearing my school shoes, but bothered. And if I've left my PE kit at home, I'll just ring, get the office to ring my mum and then she'll bring it for me. Um, so there's kind of a lack of responsibility maybe as well, I think, that comes with them.
0: Are the class sizes a selling point or is it really intense? Because sometimes when I'm working in a one to three group, an hour seems like a really long time sometimes this could have been shorter so i don't know if, if i had cope with the whole day well what do you think is that is it a pro, is it in
1: the pros list or the the cons list we have class sizes of maximum of 20 um and i can i can feel um listeners eyes rolling into the back of their heads as they're listening um but this is and again this is the situation in my school and might not necessarily be the same with all independent schools we do not have teaching assistants in years four to six our head teacher for whatever reason no matter how much research i put in front of of him to say otherwise doesn't see the benefit um, in those older years because you've got only got 20 children in your class and whilst yeah the class sizes are smaller teaching assistants are more than just um the number of children in the class and taking that number away there's a lot more to it um, and the same day intervention and so there are there are things that I think the older children miss out on in that sense um yes they they get myself and there's 20 of them um, as a maximum there are some classes that don't have that maximum at the moment um, and are a bit smaller and um but I think that there are that those pressures there as well so make sure that you are catering for all of the needs in your class and actually one thing i probably should have mentioned earlier about the myths in the independent sector they're not all high attainers they're not all um, the brightest of the bright we've got a large number of SND children in our school and parents send them to independent schools because this would be a really nurturing environment for them rather than the pressure of the state system where they're falling behind so we get a lot a lot of children with a lot of different needs in the school as well and and we need to cater for those as well um and that's the same in the state sector i completely understand that um and there are some state schools that don't have teaching assistants and have classes of 30 to up to 35 um, and i think it's it's knowing that yeah there are it's not all it's cracked up to be. Sometimes it's difficult, and um, in the same way as teaching the state school class is difficult as well. Um, but yeah, class sizes are lovely and smaller.
2: It's glorious come report writing season, obviously, because you're like, ha ha ha! I've got a third less than everyone else, um, which is lovely. I totally get what you mean about it being a bit intense, and sometimes you think, or oh, you know, how. Ha- it's a lot of people to a lot less people to concentrate on um similarly to adam we're not, we're not academically selective so we do have a broad range of ability um, we do have scnd children we do however have one ta um per year group uh from three to six we're two entry, so we tend to split them between maths and english primarily and then in the afternoon they tend to do same day interventions or, or groups or anything like that which is really handy um I love having the smaller class sizes because um so as well as my form tutor role I teach English to year five um, and I tend to get so wrapped up in teaching English that I go off on weird and wonderful tangents and because there's fewer children they all tend to come along on the journey with me um, and get really involved in whatever vocabulary thing I'm wittering on about um, you know and they all want to contribute and you don't have there's not so many children vying for your attention obviously so it means that you can give more of your time to the children but also the children can give more of their time to you so it gives you a lot more time to explore their writing in English in particular sorry that I keep harking to English but obviously that's my thing and so I I think it's of a real benefit on the flip side of that though I recently looked at I think it was an EEF study where they showed um it's a really interesting infographic where it had the cost benefit analysis of different things in school. So like teaching assistants and uh, reading intervention programs and small class sizes. And actually small class sizes came out as something that's really expensive, but doesn't actually make that much difference. So whilst I maybe feel like it does make a difference in my teaching and that parents' perceptions are that it does make a difference, on the whole, it would appear that it doesn't.
1: Yes, I think I've seen that same thing. Our our SENCO led a teaching and learning meeting on quality first teaching and said that exact same thing. Yes, we've got smaller class sizes, but actually the difference that that makes in outcomes is not as much as you would think it was. There is a lot more evidence in other areas that we can implement, such as quality first teaching, um, that has much more of an impact on outcomes which, yeah, I was, it was really interesting to see that, actually.
0: At the very start of that, you
1: mentioned
0: two languages for a considerable amount of time a week. Do your kids leave proficient in those languages?
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a real struggle. They have half an hour of french and half an hour of spanish from reception to year five and then in year six they have half an hour of french and half an hour of latin and i'm often having discussions with our mfl specialists or i should say mathol, because obviously latin is an ancient language not a modern one um uh, with about how um effective their lessons are and how we struggle with the timetable because we're trying to fit so many things in obviously things give and they find it really tricky because you they've only got them for half an hour a week and you know potentially there might be some lateness because the children are moving around the school um, when the children have specialist lessons in the prep school so junior school they move to the specialist classroom so you do lose a little bit of time in a lesson so all of that you know you start with some revision going back over topics I think they tick along really nicely um, and their interest is held and the, a- the lessons are active and they enjoy languages. I wouldn't quite say proficient was the best adjective um, that I would use.
0: Yeah I mean that's just a personal interest because I the way languages are seen to be taught don't necessarily match up with how I think we learn languages best um, and I just want to know whether it was different, but it sounds like you get a lot of the same, same issues that uh, that most schools will face, because um, you know, I mean, this is not the vehicle for me to go on a rant about how to teach languages, you know, and maybe I'm not even qualified to do so, but that's not going to stop me at some point. Um, <laughs> just yeah, just interesting. What would you make them aware of? You know you've told them all the great things that are that can happen, the great reasons to be a part of the independent sector. What sort of words of warning might you, might you give them?
1: I'd like to come in and say timetabling is the bane of my life. Now I'm not responsible for it, um, thankfully, um, but it is an absolute nightmare. When you've got all these specialists who in our school are teaching, some specialists are teaching across two schools. So our computing lead teaches from reception through to year eight, trying to, to fit in her timetable um, and then all those other specialist timetables. What we get as class teachers is then this is what's left over. And within that, you need to fit. We fit in our English, our maths, which is four and a half hours a week. So our timetable split into half an hour. So if you try to imagine it, it's difficult to kind of explain about having it in front. But if you think of our timetable split into 10 half an hours a day, and then you've got break and lunch and so forth. We've got... For our computing, it's two of those half an hours, so it's an hour block, but it's split over. Um, it's split into half an hours, and you've got that for drama, and you've got that for music, and then the class teacher is left with this is what's left, and you've got to fit in four and a half hours of English, so you need nine English slots. The same for maths, four and a half hours, nine maths slots. You've got two hours of humanities. Um, And you've got half an hour of PSHE and half an hour of RE. And I know from the RE subject review states that anything less than 45 minutes is unsatisfactory. We're very aware of that. But with our timetable constraints, bane of my life, um, it's not possible to fit everything in. We have five hours of PE a week with an hour of PE, an hour of swimming, an hour of outdoor education, which I'm gonna class as PE in this sense an hour of games and then an hour and a half of fixtures um, because pupils take part in in sports against other schools and fixtures, which is a great opportunity for them. It's more than we spend on our English and our maths. And I haven't even mentioned reading. And I know I've spoken to Matt Swain about this before and um, I won't repeat what he said to me, but we don't have time to fit reading in the curriculum um, within our timetable. We have a library slot where our class go to see our librarian, she'll read to them. And we are trying to find time and and have fixed points where we have teachers modeling reading um, to our children. And our reading comes through our English and it comes through um, our writing from there. But it's very difficult to fit everything in. And especially when you actually get your timetable and realize you can't have an hour of maths. You have to have half an hour at nine o'clock in the morning and the other half an hour to that hour is at one o'clock in the afternoon it's it's tough and i don't know live if you've got the same experience with timetables but it is um it is tricky because specialists have to come first because they are teaching such a vast number of children across the whole school
2: so i see your timetable woes and i raise you having to do the timetable At least, I think last year, I must have done it once every half term, completely redone the timetable for the entire school. To top that off, we also don't tend to have supply teachers in. So if we need to do cover, 20% non-contact time that isn't 20% because you potentially would have to cover when people are off sick. So that all gets moved around into the ether as well. Although luckily it's not me that has to do the cover timetable because that is the most hideous thing in the world ever. I would also say that it's just sometimes it's just frenetic and it's so busy because you've got to keep to fit everything in and um exactly as Adam said there's half an hour slots that we do so much this week um we've gone to Windsor Castle because it's on our doorstep so we went for half the day there so that's half a day of lessons gone and then um we have lectures after school sometimes your parents come in we just had a lecture on the civil service and arranging the commonwealth games which was phenomenal um but it just feels sometimes like it's non-stop and because you don't have that half a day block of ppa that's ring fenced out um you just have your half an hour's here and there when you can grab them um it sometimes can be really overwhelming and i think if you are not um Really structured in your time management and your prioritization of things, it it can really be overwhelming because you'll set aside. I know I I certainly do. I'm gonna do um I'm gonna do my marking in that half an hour slot, and in that half an hour slot, I'm gonna speak to those three parents, um and then in that half an hour slot, um I'm gonna do a pupil voice or a learning walk or something, and then that doesn't happen because it's the same with every school isn't it something always comes up in you can't ever have a day that goes to plan nothing ever goes to plan but it just feels a little bit more busy if that makes sense
0: yeah total sense I would hate that because I like to have here are my three hours I'm going to do something substantial with this time I'm literally taking everything off if I've got 20 minutes like say there's 20 minutes before I do gate duty I'm going to have a coffee during that twenty minutes because it's only twenty minutes. And yes, yeah, so I'm glad you warned me. You know, with the meals to avoid and the frenetic time management, I think I might be in the state sector for the for the, for the long term. <laughs> what do you think mainstream schools can learn from independent schools?
2: Offering as many amazing opportunities as possible. I know that you have spoken in the past about um, specialists and um, skills and getting the best out of people. And I'm sure that didn't you narrow down to just teaching three things? You're wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, when you're education minister and you've narrowed it down to three things, you're essentially following the uh, independent school model of having specialists teach those things. And having that wealth of knowledge, and you know when we were speaking about languages earlier, having these amazingly fluent people teach um, with an amazing accent for the children is phenomenal. Our music teacher is just amazing. He, we were in assembly one day, and and I'm sure there are other music teachers out there that are like this, but I was completely wowed, having never seen seen one like this. Um, the uh, PowerPoint wouldn't work, and the song wouldn't play, and he literally just went one moment tinkle 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 and played the whole thing just off the top of his head like having talent like that at your fingertips is just phenomenal and I think that I don't know how it would work obviously you as education minister will make this work but um having those specialists in would be a massive thing
0: yeah I think it, it is a systemic thing it's something that uh, investment needs to come from outside of mainstream schools to keep up with in that respect and it has to become a desirable place for people of those talents you know for instance he sounds as if he were in a, a thespian or, so, or a musician in a in another life and has you know does does the teaching bit on the side I don't know yes but so I think you need to make it attractive so I think that's out of school hands but definitely something for my well, it'll, be, it'll probably be about 2028 by the time I'm in government you know and, and we will sort it out
1: I haven't really got anything left to add to that really um, I think uh, Liv sums it up really well I think yeah making use of of what teachers are interested in and where their passions are and I think we could do a lot more of Obviously, this has been said in the podcast before that in primary in particular we can't be specialists in everything but yet we've got to teach everything so how do we do that so I think it's a case of sharing good practice and teachers having the opportunities to to share their passions and share their interests and share their strengths within the curriculum as well to and feel confident enough to be able to do that and given the platform to be able to do that as well where the independent sector has the specialist teachers um, giving um, state school teachers as well the opportunities to go and teach a geography lesson to year two if you are passionate about geography um, to go and teach art to year six, if you are a very keen and uh, artist. And that's not just being a subject leader. That's um, the opportunities to team teach and finding time in the timetable to be able to do that. And I think with the constraints and the pressures that go on in, in all sectors, I think it's, it's finding that time where children can really benefit from the expertise of teachers that we have.
0: I mean, when I think about my sort of specialist model, if I, I often think about, well, it works in independent schools. How many teachers would I need in a two form entry school were we to work within the curricular expectations of mainstream? So one hour of, was it one hour of PE? No, two hours PE rather than five. How many teachers, How, can, I, can I make it work?
2: How long is your school day?
0: Roughly six hours,
1: including lunch.
2: No. Nah.
1: Needs to be longer. You'd, you'd need multiple, I think you'd need multiple specialists to cover everyone across the week. So you'd need, for example, two PE teachers at least to be able to teach every class. So if you've got 12, if you've got six hours in a, in a day, Um, and two and two classes and depends i don't think maybe i'm doing the maths wrong but i don't i think you'd need more specialists you'd need probably two of each so i think for funding um i think it'd be more than the normal 80 percent going on staff costs from your funding every year
2: it's essentially a woeful business model
0: (laughs)
1: yeah this is the brick wall i keep
0: hitting because i have actually tried to run the numbers and to try and make a timetable but obviously if i if you know neil has this idea for the neil almond free school or the NAF school as, <laughs> as we like to call it <laughs> and i think okay well i if he gives me the chance and we we you can only bring you know maybe two classes through at the start and then you go three classes four until you eventually get the school so you're going to almost have like 20 teachers for one class of kids at some point, so I don't think it's going to get very far with the DfE. And I just thought, well, actually, you guys have experienced this kind of timetable, and Liv, you've done this kind of timetable. It sounds like I need to change it, comp- change the whole education system if I'm going to
1: make this work. Or you just take out just take out some um, subjects that are surplus to requirements from the uh, national curriculum.
2: I think you'd have to also find some really specialist specialists so that you could try and maximise your coverage, minimising your costs. I'm not going to lie, I'm a demon on a spreadsheet. Um, I could probably somehow wangle some little algorithm to make it work and to make sure that everybody was covered fairly. Every year I'm presented with these new challenges of fitting square pegs into round holes and making things and somehow i manage it there's always someone that i've really annoyed but um just tend to give them cake and then keeps them at bay
0: (laughs) yeah i I reckon people will have to teach at least two subjects you know so the math teacher would teach one of the sciences maybe all of the sciences you know sort of combine them like that but i think that's probably for another chat a long way down the down the line Now, is there anything you think independent schools could learn from mainstream schools?
2: Um, Adam's going to say exactly the same thing as me. Collaboration, CPD, best practice, sharing, sharing, like not being tiny little toddlers in the playgrounds where we have to keep our precious secrets. Um, And as a school, we are most definitely trying to not be like that um i'm trying to set up um a local network of curriculum leads so that we can try and share best practice and not just the independent ones as well but also the state um so that we can work together um there's a lot of insular nature i think sometimes and a lethargy about moving forward and uh, moving away from what's always been as the prep school model and i think Post-COVID, a lot of independent schools have had to change because, you know, we had to have our remote learning offer and we we straight away were online learning and we were Zooming every day. We had live lessons that we were teaching Um we had recorded lessons on Google Classroom and the children's days were filled because a lot of parents were working from home still and they needed their children entertaining more more so than anything but I think yeah just that willingness that yes they are a competition and yes I know that actually if somebody does go down the road to them that potentially means that someone's in danger of losing their job because we don't have enough money to sustain the number of teachers or you know worst case scenario but yeah I think independent schools are still really really reticent to to share any of their closely guarded educational secrets.
1: Exactly that yeah just sharing good practice and uh, yeah it's it doesn't need to be a secret because all independent schools, and especially around, as I've said, where I am, there are several independent schools in our area. It's a case of they're the competition. And so if I wanted to go and see good practice in another independent school, the chance are I'd probably be rejected by that school. Well, no, I don't want you coming in and, and taking all of our hard work for you to come and take our children um, away and money from our pockets whereas yeah in the in the state sector low like it's rife like you see Andrew Percival who he's inviting people left right and center to his school and I'd love to live closer to be able to go and, and visit that wouldn't that doesn't happen in the independent sector you don't have people inviting other teachers from the sector in um, so I think yeah it's exactly as Liv said like don't be scared of just working together because at the end of the day we all want the same thing for our children and yes it's a business and yes money ends up being involved but surely we should be creating a model that is around our context and just because it works in one school doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere it's it's working to the strength of that school rather than um, having to keep everything hidden and um, locked away just for those schools
2: I think some of that also is perpetuated by funding and things to do with like the local education authority. So, although we aren't beholden to them in in the way that state schools are, obviously we still are part of that local education authority. And when our borough offers training and CPD that are curriculum network meetings or subject specific network meetings or all things like that, we're not invited, we're not allowed to come um, because we're not part of the funded of the borough and so automatically we're excluded now I know that you know we have got the funds where other schools haven't and we can afford to send people on training and things like that but it's not always the training that is the thing that you get the most out of I certainly find that meeting people and chatting with people and networking you know awful word is the best way to find out new things and to chat to people and to see what works. It's not necessarily the actual training provider. Um, And we're denied those opportunities, which I, sorry, sound like a spoiled brat, but I just think that's really fundamental and and I don't think it's fair.
0: Are you guys then outliers? Because I see you sharing and learning from other people all the time. Would you consider yourselves outliers even across the teaching body or is it just sort of the upper echelons of leadership?
1: I don't think that I mean they talk about like with Twitter and things and teachers on Twitter, it's only five percent of teachers that that engage with it. Um, and so whether we're outliers or not, I'm not sure because I think that's across education general. We are a small number engaging with research and bring that into our schools. One thing I've noticed, and again, Liv and I were talking about this earlier, is that teachers albeit they, they don't like change as it is, in the independent sector, I feel that they're even more reluctant to change. And this is the way it's always been. And so that's, that's how it's gonna stay. And I've, I've found that just trying to put in evidence-informed practices into school, retrieval practice, for example, as a starting point, got some very mixed reviews to start with, even though you go down the why, route and this is the purpose and this is how it's going to benefit outcomes still teachers are oh it's just something else something else I've got to do Um, we changed our English scheme of learning this year to a a provider um, and it's been it's been fantastic and the outcomes to promote writing across the school which was our priority have been fantastic but at the start there were certain teachers who were like I don't want to do this not doing this oh this is too much hard work but actually it was those same teachers who came back to six weeks later a term later this is amazing have you seen the writing that so and so has produced well yeah so if you actually give it a chance and give change a chance you can see the positive benefits that it's having and I think from from my experience in the the independent sector teachers are more reluctant to that change until they see the outcomes and the results they feel though they're being done onto um and but it's been fine it's fine the way it's always been um and they kind of need that push and to see that outcome before they actually turn around saying well actually yeah it wasn't that bad
2: i think we are the outliers in a sense i didn't realize that that was it only five percent of Teachers were like involved in Twitter. I really didn't realize that. I'm sure that the the rest of that five percent have tweeted more than 613 times, though, right? <laughs> I think it's changing. I've been to a couple of events at um, other independent schools where they have openly showcased what they've done, mainly with technology. And I think part of it is bragging rights, <laughs> and part of it is sharing best practice. But it is still very insular, and it is still rife with sexism and it is still the old boys corduroy trouser tweed jacket wearing network so yeah it is changing i think one of the reasons it's changing is from my perception is there's a lot more crossover now between state and independent a lot of our teachers have come from state or they're not the typical prep school backgrounds And i think now in my school i'm probably the minority of being privately educated all the way through and then becoming a teacher and it's shifting more the other way
1: i can see that actually um the we're getting more state school teachers into the, the private sector, myself included. We've had some NQTs or ECTs they are now, but they were NQTs start from their first year teaching with us in an independent school. And I've said to them, go out and into the the world of the state sector and learn your craft and, and then come and join the independent sector afterwards. I feel that there can be um, sometimes a a rose-tinted view of education within the independent sector I think and really learning how much children value education and really value coming into school from those deprived backgrounds I think that's that could be missed when you've got these children who've got everything they could possibly desire at home and in school I would like to see, and whatever route teachers take that's entirely down to them that was that's my personal opinion um I feel that they would benefit a lot more from, from that start within their career to m- then moving to the independent sector, if that's how they wish.
2: That's the same with all ECTs, though, I think. My placement schools were all leafy Surrey schools where you know there was the Surrey average and there was the national average. And it wasn't until one of my final placements where I did it um, in the middle of a council estate where my little eyes were... <laughs> opened wide to the wealth of possibilities out there and actually like that feeling of oh my goodness me I'm actually making a difference I think it would be really important for all ECTs to experience that journey and and also to experience part of life in the independent sector on that journey there should be a plethora of um diverse opportunities available to all ects and it should be mandatory that you have to go from one end of the scale to the other like you say to learn your craft to see what's out there to really know what you're talking about rather than doing your placement in with the school that you then do your NQT or ECT years in and then you stay there for 35 years you know which happens in state and independent
0: so how can we bridge the gap or bridge the divide between the systems
2: I think doing that I think making uh, it's so that everybody has to experience both for starters obviously listening to this wonderfully informative podcast um about how it is not the dark side <laughs> um and um just getting people to talk more and work together more and you know not be biased towards each other um and, and to yeah just engage in discourse and chat
1: i think it's easy for for people to, to see the money um, within the independent sector. Um, oh, you get this opportunity, you get that, but we don't. And I think as we've spoken about and, and Liv's spoken about really well, about sharing good practice and, and sharing what works well in the mainstream and what works well in the independent sector and finding a happy medium between the two, because the independent sector, I think, has got a lot to learn from, stay and perhaps vice versa. And maybe vice versa is challenged a little bit more because of funding. Um, and that is made a, a lot more difficult with the money available in schools. So they haven't got the opportunity for specialist teachers left, right and centre. Of course they haven't. Um, there are more important um, areas of development within certain schools, within certain more deprived areas. But I think, as we've said, that collaboration and talking to each other and and sharing teachers as well and so independent schools going into or independent school teachers going into state schools as well and maybe giving up some of their time um, and building that network between them and Liv said about how she's doing that with curriculum leaders um, in her area But being able to do that and share that practice, having an art specialist going into a local primary school just for an afternoon and um, delivering some um, CPD, for example, or just going to teach a couple of classes in there and giving them the opportunity they might not normally have could be something really valuable and really build up that, use the term, network and opportunities that maybe are not always afforded to, to those children. I think there's something really powerful in that. Um, moving forwards perhaps.
2: Maybe that's how you're gonna get your business model to work here and <laughs> poaching pit teachers across from the independent sector to do like poaching their community service.
0: Yeah, I mean I've got good time. I'll think I'll think about it. But obviously, with your proficiency in in Excel and spreadsheeting, you know, you'll definitely be on the payroll. I mean, what 80% teachers, 20% your sort of consultancy cost for for the legwork. (laughs) I mean, it's probably very easy to think you know, that the reluctance from the independent sector is unique to the independent sector because because we're in our little bubble where we're engaging with research and with professional development almost as a hobby, as much as it is our jobs. It's very easy to think that that's the way everybody thinks. But I think across both sectors, there's still a long way to go before it is the norm. You know, people still laugh at me when I talk about reading about education, you know, either during the school day or in my spare time. And I'm sure that's the same up and down the country and potentially across the world. So, yeah, so I think, you know, we, you know, bit by bit, hopefully the narrative changes, hopefully the changes to the ECT framework are promoting that. Because certainly the ECTs I meet are having much richer discussions about cognitive psychology and about pedagogy and practice than I was when I started teaching, you know, and it took by chance to read David Die or to read Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson, and then see that there was a, a different world out there, you know, so, you know, it has, it's been really, really interesting listening to you guys. And I hope that um, that listeners will maybe even, especially if they're in your area, We'll reach out and try and make those connections i think that'll be a wonderful thing to happen off the back of this interview and um, all i said to do is, is to say thank you very much for joining me thank you liv
2: thank you for having me
0: thank you adam thank you very much kieran really appreciate the time and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening forgotten the question on him.